0: Thank you all very much for making me so welcome it's a real privilege to be able to uh, be with you today and to speak i don't often get to london um, so this is a, a one-off and a rare delight thank you very much i'm going to begin by telling you a little bit about the story of the book and how it came to be a couple of years ago i thought what shall i do this lent I thought, I know, I will do some uh, devotional writing. Now that sometimes came in the form of uh, letters to friends. I'm not always a very good correspondent, um, but I always do my best. Um, and uh, it might be in the, uh, in the context of a few thoughtful sermons. I wasn't beating myself up about it because term time um, in Oxford is always extremely busy. Um, and so I didn't want to, uh, make a rod for my own back but I do enjoy writing. I reflect when I'm writing and I thought this would be an excellent way of doing something devotional and a bit different for Lent. So my Lenten discipline was to write something every week. I wouldn't necessarily hold myself to something every day uh, because I knew that that probably wouldn't happen. And some of what I wrote uh, was engaging with the Psalms. Why the Psalms? because I had written my doctoral thesis on them, but not only that. The psalms are an integral part of my worship. Uh, I say morning and evening prayer um, almost every day, Uh, and uh, we have college evensong every day, every Sunday during term time. And there are lots and lots of psalms and lots of different translations, therefore, uh, interspersing my worship and my prayer life. I love the Psalms. So when I started doing my uh, doctoral thesis, uh, I came up with the idea that I was going to be thinking about memory in the language of prayer. I didn't necessarily decide I was going to do New Testament or Old Testament. I wanted initially to do it across the whole Bible, um, but supervisors being supervisors, they do make you narrow down. And uh, so we quickly decided that the obvious corpus for thinking about prayer texts in the Bible was going to be the Book of Psalms. And I was quite delighted by this, actually. So I then narrowed it down and became a Hebrew Bible or Old Testament scholar, and I loved it. So that's where I was coming from. So the Psalms are effectively second nature to me. So I spent a bit of time thinking about translating some psalms and just writing them in a way that might be accessible to uh, Christian people um, in England. Uh, I wanted them to be able to connect with people, and so I thought carefully about how I might translate them, how, what I might want to say to other people about them. Anyway, we got to the end of Lent, um, and I thought, well, that was nice. Um, I enjoyed that, and I didn't think too much more about it. However, my then bishop, uh, Bishop John Pritchard, uh, formerly Bishop of Oxford, uh, who has a lot to do with SPCK, so, uh, so I've got a lot to thank him for, uh, I, uh, I was in uh, communication with him, and he, encur- he was encouraging me to write something sort of popular. So after a while, I thought, well, I'll send off to him what I wrote through my Lenten writings and see what he thinks about my style and about, you know, Uh, how I might go about something like this in the future. He wrote back a couple of days later and said, I've taken the liberty of sending it to um, the editorial team at SBCK." and a few months after that I had a commission to write a psalm a day for Lent and Easter. So that's how it came about. Um, Six months later it was um, with the uh, SPCK SPCK team and uh, it was a real joy. I thoroughly enjoyed writing it. How did I go about it? Uh, If you have picked up a copy, um, then uh, please bear with me while I might uh, repeat some of what you already know. Uh, If you haven't, then this bit's for you. Uh, There's an overture, as it were, of um, the week that begins Ash Wednesday and goes through to the Saturday. And then uh, there's the four weeks of Lent per se, each according to a particular theme, which, I would hope would connect with everyday lived experiences in our day and age. Week one, it's a hard world. Week two, it's an unjust world. Week three, it's a big world. And week four, it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world begins uh, with Mothering Sunday or Refreshment Sunday, and so that was a way of trying to echo the themes of that stage of Lent. Then we get to Passion Tide. Passion Sunday is the Sunday of week five in Lent. I don't write psalms, I, I didn't include psalms on the Sundays because Uh, As I'm sure you're all aware, Sundays don't count in Lent, Uh, then Lent would be more than 40 days and that would confuse us all mightily. So, uh, Sundays I uh, give us all a break, which means that if you're anything like me and you're reading a Lent book and you've missed out a few days along the way, then in fact, Sunday is often quite a good time for catching up. So, passion-tired, I then changed uh, the tone a little, thinking about journeying. So from place to place is week five, and then Holy Week, week six, to a holy place. Then we get to week seven, and that's Easter, a redeemed world, a complete change of the picture. So I had to uh, choose different Psalms that would suit each of those themes, but I didn't want to uh, end up just doing a few, similar psalms, I wanted to jump all around uh, the five books of the Psalter in order to give you a good variety of different texts. If you are familiar with the psalms, you'll know that there's a big variety in these prayers. There are all sorts of different types of prayer. There are uh, lament prayers, there are wisdom prayers, Torah, prayers, prayers that talk about the law. There are hymns, there are occasional ones which don't actually mention very much about God, like Psalm 45. It's a wonderfully eclectic set of texts, 150 psalms and five books within them, not divided equally, but little collections within them. There are prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of joy, and Everything else in between. They cover the whole gamut of experience, emotion and humanity. There's nothing left out. I might even go so far as to say. So what exactly is a psalm? You've already picked up, presumably, that there's something of the eclectic about this collection. There are prayers which are simply to God. There are words which are about God, there are words which may not even so much be about God but about enemies or foreigners or uh, brothers and sisters and how we see our lives in relation to them. They are texts which can be used in worship, texts which always were used in worship and texts which as you've heard still continue to be used in worship today. So I wanted to try and cut across all of those different categories in the way that I chose the psalms. I translated each of them, uh, and that in itself was fun. A bit more about that in a moment, and then I wrote a comment on each of them so that uh, there would be 800 to 1,000 words, a nice bite-sized chunk of reflection after I'd finished the translation. It was usually the translation in the first place, which gave me the starting point for things that I might want to talk about. So I've been asked, uh, I've been described as exploring some of what I have learnt from studying, translating and praying these extraordinary songs of hope, challenge and wisdom, so at least you know that I'm keeping to my brief that was precisely how I began my preparations today. What are they all expecting? What have they been told to expect? Uh, so that, hopefully, I may meet some of those expectations, even if not all of them. And that's why you have question time at the end. So what have I learnt from studying the Psalms? Prayer is clearly an ancient, ancient art, and it will go on throughout the ages, And Across the world. Some of the texts of the Psalms are very, very old indeed. It's hard to give precise dates, and a lot of them come from all different eras. Some seem to reflect an experience of exile, uh, which would have been um, in the uh, early 5th century uh, BC when there was an exile from Jerusalem. 586, 587 was the, um, BC was the sort of true destruction uh, of the temple and all those kinds of things. Some Psalms which allude to that seem to be a bit easier to date. Some of them talk about the monarchy and so that is uh, obviously a reflection of an earlier time. Some are said to be by David himself and of course that's going back really quite a long way. It could well have been that some were deeply influenced by uh, neighbors, geographical neighbors, and so there seem to be some resonances with literature and prayer texts of the ancient Near East, and probably going back even before David. They would have been part of the prayer life, part of the uh, spiritual language, as it were, of uh, these communities, and then they make their way Into consolidated texts and written texts. Prayer then is clearly a deeply ancient art, the art of writing sacred texts for use in worship and for use in talking to God. And it will go on throughout the ages and across the world, which is why we have them today. If you think how many hands or minds or voices the Psalms must have gone through to reach us today. It's actually, it's absolutely mind-boggling. So we, when we're praying the Psalms, are joining a massive community of many, many people we would never even begin to imagine or to think about. So it's wonderful to be part of such an historical and future-looking community. They're also, of course, Jesus' prayers. And that is partly how it also ties in to being a Lent book. As an Old Testament scholar, we tend to try quite hard to avoid any kind of supersessionist take on the Psalms, that is to say, or indeed the whole uh, Hebrew Bible, that is to say, to be able to recognise the value of these texts and scriptures for themselves and realise that seeing them through our Christian lenses today isn't necessarily the whole story of how we might approach these texts. So, writing a Lent book and writing about these texts as the prayers of Jesus means that there's a creative tension about that. There's a tension between receiving the text in its all its integrity as a text which Christ himself inherited and then also receiving it as a text which Christ himself then prayed and which Christians throughout the world have prayed ever since. It's amazing to think that Jesus himself prayed some of these psalms and that's partly how I chose the psalms for Holy Week because they were the psalms that would have been uh, sung by devout Jews at the Passover, so rather fitting for that most holy of weeks in the lead-up to Christ's crucifixion. What else have I learnt from these psalms? I've mentioned that uh, they cover the whole gamut of emotions and experiences. Sometimes prayer can be hard if we're in such a desperate place. we might find that we don't have anything left in us to pray with. And that's sometimes where having other people's texts can actually be a real boon. We don't have to think up the words ourselves. We can use other people's words and let them be our prayer. I find that deeply encouraging uh, at many stages of my life. And so there's a sense of there being no hope but that's sorry there is a sense of there being hope even when there is no hope most of the psalms uh, even if they're exploring some really deep dark stuff have a kind of turnaround and they end in a much more um, positive note there's one psalm psalm 88 which doesn't even have that it's just depressing through and through you might say I sing Psalm 88 from the pulpit in my husband's church on Maundy Thursday during the stripping of the altars just to a very simple uh, plain song chant and that is uh, a real privilege to me and deeply moving I think for all of us. Even though there is no sense of hope in such a despairing psalm, yet the very existence Of the psalm itself is a symbol of hope. The very fact that somebody could have called out to God in such a state, and not only that one somebody, but that it was then uh, continued, it was passed down, suggests that even when there seems to be absolutely no hope, sometimes there can be hope even just in the existence of a prayer which is so raw and vulnerable. So the Psalms are a book of hope as well. Studying the Psalms also um, really consolidated for me the idea that study and prayer are intertwined I wrote most of of this book, and indeed some of my doctoral thesis, uh, while I was on retreat. I'm not saying that is necessarily the way to do retreat, but it is certainly sometimes one way to do retreat, particularly if, like me, you like to uh, reflect through writing. Sometimes then going away into the midst of the countryside and sitting down with the text of the Psalms in front of an icon, in a little prayer space uh, actually is wonderful, absolutely wonderful and life-changing. And so it was in that context that I wrote quite a lot of uh, of my book. So in a sense, I don't claim the credit for it, but I say as in the initials at the beginning SDG, as Bach would have known, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. So my writing has been a prayer, and I hope it will always be a prayer. Study and prayer, I think, can go very closely together and can be a really fruitful way of doing each of them. Particularly, of course, if you're studying prayer texts. That makes the connection even more obvious. I've mentioned how the Psalms are a sort of communal text, that they're prayers for all generations, all countries. That study of prayer is itself also a communal act. If you think about how uh, Jesus' own Jewish education uh, would have been shaped, it would have been at the feet of rabbis, it would have been in community, It would have been uh, teaching passed on from one to another, not necessarily the university setting that you might think of these days, uh, where students hold themselves up in their rooms with books and they don't necessarily see the light of day for many hours on end. Obviously at Jesus College, we try not to let that be the case because it wouldn't be very healthy, Uh, but sometimes we might have that vision of people tucking themselves away in a hermit fashion in order to do their study. The study of the Bible, the study of the prayer texts of the Psalms, is perhaps at its best a communal thing. So it's wonderful that I'm here to share that uh, with you today, and it's also a learning experience for me, more of that at the end. So what have I got from, what have I learnt from translating the Psalms? We've talked a bit about what I've learned from studying them. What have I learned from translating them? If you go to uh, the regular worship here and, uh, or indeed sing in it, um, and I know that some of you do, uh, then you will, of course, become very familiar with some of the poetry, the words, the nuances of particular translations, particularly, probably Coverdale um, in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, or if you're a regular um, saying the common worship daily prayer, there's a lovely app which you can download um, on uh, these electronic gadgets which uh, certainly the youth uh, seem to be uh, increasingly connected to. Uh, There are ways in which we can connect uh, to a modern translation in uh, the setting of the daily office. So we know lots of different translations. When I came to giving my own translation, I wanted to do something new, something hopefully sometimes a little arresting, as well as hopefully sometimes also comforting. The Holy Spirit both uh, comforts and challenges, um, and therefore, insofar as the Psalms are prayer texts which we pray with and to the Holy Spirit. Songs of the Spirit, seems appropriate, doesn't it? Then Of course, we are looking at texts, which will probably do a bit of both challenging and comforting. I then wanted to uh, try and connect with uh, people in our day and age um, in, in a new way. So sometimes I use quite modern language. Psalm 96, and I don't think anyone's uh, got to Psalm 96 yet, unless you're reading ahead, which would be very virtuous. Um, (laughs) Psalm 96, for instance, um, I have brought many a smile to my students' faces by telling them that I use the word dis, partly um, because obviously I know that you don't get dis in Coverdale or probably any other translation of the Psalms. I haven't come across it, Um, but also uh, because It has some alliteration. Um, The phrase I use it in is dissing the divinities of other nations. Dissing the divinities, of course, has that um, alliteration. And also a kind of tone, a sound about it that's a bit hard um, and a bit uh, sort of critical, which I think is actually an echo of the kind of tone that the psalmist might have been wanting to get at there. So sometimes it might seem a bit uncomfortable because it's not the beautiful traditional poetry of the BCP. That's probably the most extreme example I could give you. Um, But sometimes, of course, I did want it to be just gorgeous. Now, I don't pretend to be a poet. I love poetry, but I'm not writing in metre. I'm not writing in rhyming couplets or anything like that. These aren't metrical versions of the psalms that you could sing to well-known hymn tunes. I think there are quite a lot of them and i 'm not even going to try to add my text to those, but they are texts which I hope they are translations which I hope pay very close attention to the Hebrew word order, so sometimes they can be particularly emphatic i 've um, part of the communal study uh, that I've been um, enjoying with my readership is that I've been rather surprised by getting some, um, quite a lot of of lovely notes, um, often from complete strangers. This is a whole new world to me, Um, so thank you for being with me um, as I grow in this new world. Psalm 74 was one which um, had quite a lot of feedback, actually. Psalm 74 is one that probably can be dated to uh, shortly after the the destruction of the temple. I can't find it now. There we go. Um, And in the second part of this psalm, there is a very clear, emphatic Hebrew word order. I'm going to read out just a little bit to you so that you see where I'm coming from. It's addressed to God. The first little bit is um, really desolate angst, re-envisioning the destruction of the temple And then verse 12, there's that turning point that I told you about, yet God is my king from of old. He works salvation throughout the land. Then he goes on to address God. You, by your might, split open the sea. You shattered the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You, you crushed the heads of Leviathan and you gave him as food to the throng of wild beasts. You, you broke open spring and torrent. You, you dried up ever flowing rivers. Yours is the day, yours also is the night. You, you fixed in space the moon and the sun. You, you set up the boundaries of the earth, summer and winter, you, you created them. Remember this, the enemy has scorned you, Lord, and foolish people have spurned your name. So there's quite a uh, climactic building up there of the emphasis on quite how much God has done for his people and the relationship he has historically had with his people. The rationale then behind it is saying, so how can you have let this happen? What are you going to do about it, God? That's echoing the Hebrew, uh, there's a separate word for you, and then you is also included um, within the word that is the Hebrew verb. The way that Hebrew verbs are constructed means that lots of stuff, uh, lots of meaning is squished into just a few letters. And that means uh, sometimes the person who's doing the action and the person to whom or the thing to whom the action is done, they can all be included within that word. So, you, you have done so and so, is two words. There's the you and then there's the you have done so and so. I obviously wanted to pay due attention to that. Having read that, it also brings out something of the structure of the lines. Often Hebrew poetry is split into, uh, each verse of Hebrew poetry is split into two halves, as it were, occasionally three. And there is a sense of meter and rhythm that comes out simply through that. So although I said I didn't do meter and rhythm, I let the Hebrew and the translation do the meter and the rhythm me. All this idea of living translation. These texts, I am reminded, are ready to speak afresh to our generation and to each one of us and all of our contexts. Therefore, I might use some modern uh, language and I might use some simple language to try and help people, uh, to see them afresh and not just to think, oh, that's one of those uh, posh words that they use um, when the choir is singing the Psalms. Ascribe unto God, for instance. We don't use the word ascribe in everyday conversation. Well, you may do, but I I don't tend to. Uh, But I might talk about credit. I've got a credit card, and so I might want to say um, I want to give credit to God, and that's precisely. Therefore, how in fact I translate a scribe, because in fact that's actually very close to uh, the original Hebrew meaning, at least in my interpretation. So these texts are, yes, they've been created, but they continue to be creative. They are living, organic texts. The Hebrew language has its own richness as well as its own simplicity. Our language has richness and simplicity in equal measure as well and that can be a real gift to our life of prayer. In fact, it's rather fitting, isn't it, in so far as God in Jesus, at the prologue to St John's Gospel, is considered as the Logos, the word, the spoken word. So that's a little bit about what I've learned from translating them. What I have learned from praying them is the next thing on my brief. Of course, it's, it's easier to think of them sometimes as our prayers, even if we're not in the place to pray and we want to use someone else's words and make them our own. But equally, sometimes they can be other people's prayers that we can pray for them, mindful of the fact that... Just as we sometimes might find ourselves finding it hard to pray, probably there are lots of other people out there right now who are having problems praying. And therefore, in fact, insofar as we might be praying these psalms, they can be prayers for them as well. If, for instance, we're in a really good place, we're um, having a honeymoon period and a new job, or um, we've just... Uh, fallen in love with the love of our lives. If, if something is going really well for us, and in fact we want to sing lots of praise songs, um, and then the lectionary um, throws up for us an even song, a real where me psalm, then we might not sort of think this is deeply resonating with my soul at the moment, but it's probably deeply resonating with someone else's. There is again a sense of community in how we can pray. So sometimes they can be our prayers, sometimes they are prayers we pray for others, others can help me in praying them just as I can help them, uh, just as I can pray them for other people as well. Reading and prayer as well can be intertwined. Prayer doesn't have to be something that we say aloud um, or just be silent and contemplative about. Sometimes just by Spending time with a text, reading it slowly, perhaps rereading it, um, it can be a way of praying in a different kind of language. The text, the written text, the, the ink on the page can be a kind of prayer in itself. They also give us phrases for our prayers. I don't know whether you've come across uh, Jonah, the wonderfully short prophet Uh, not short in stature but short in words Um, and uh, there are four books four chapters in the book of Jonah so nice and easy uh, for when you've got your next cup of tea Uh, Jonah has um, in chapter two suddenly breaks into a prayer he's in the belly of the whale he's in the deepest of the deep Um, he thinks that there is uh, no future and he bursts into prayer how does he burst into prayer? Well, he doesn't just quote a psalm, but he quotes a mishmash of all sorts of different prayer and psalm texts from throughout the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. And that I think is instructive. That shows how sometimes we can be shaped by the very language that we hear in the prayers that we pray or others pray with us. Um, we may not be able to memorize um, that, that those texts from beginning to end, But sometimes those phrases can stick with us. That, I think, is just what happened uh, with Jonah, insofar as you consider Jonah to be an historical book. But that's another question. And I'm talking about the Psalms, not Jonah. So that's easy. I don't have to go into that now. Uh, But there is a sense in which uh, we can pick up the language of prayer by immersing ourselves in the Psalms. I've said that I continue to learn. I continue to learn about the Psalms as I pray them um, afresh day by day. Um, And I continue to learn about the Psalms with uh, people like you, with my readership, uh, with my students, my wonderful students at Jesus uh, have decided that they share my passion for the Psalms, which is the right thing for them to say. Um, And therefore, uh, when they come along to uh, singing at Evensong and they take their psalm out for the day, which usually the preacher has chosen, um, they've instigated something called Psalm's Corner. Um, And that's when they look carefully at the text and they think a bit about the text together. This gives me great joy, as you can perhaps imagine, that our students are engaging so closely with the biblical text. prior to performing them. So you see how prayer, study, leading worship can all be intertwined. By praying the Psalms, we are also studying them and reading them. Ancient prayers and the wisdom that they encompass can build us and indeed our communities up. We are communities of prayer. We are communities of faithful people. And then a little coda, as it were. These are extraordinary songs of hope, challenge and wisdom, as uh, was also said in the blurb about me. Well, absolutely, I've already mentioned the extraordinary gamut of uh, experience and emotion that go into these psalms. I've mentioned Psalm 88 and its despairing tone throughout. There are other psalms where there's a great deal of despair and, as I say, there's a sudden turnaround in emotion and tone. So, there can be hope even in the darkest moments. Psalm 22, for instance, which uh, is then quoted by Jesus on the cross in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. You see how Jesus himself used the Psalms? How encouraging is that? Psalm 22 itself even has words of hope there, even when we associate them from a Christian tradition with the foot of the cross. And challenge. I know sometimes the Psalms fit uncomfortably um, with different people. Different Psalms are sometimes different, difficult to swallow. Psalm 137 is one of those ones that many uh, churches might wish to take out the last couple of verses because there's a really ghastly image of um, smashing children's heads against rocks, far from beautiful, not attractive, not the sort of thing we want to be proclaiming in our churches. But we still have them, they're still there. They haven't been edited out. Sometimes they might have square brackets around them in different traditions when they've come up with their own translations, but I haven't shied away from them because they are part of the whole text. As I say, it's about a whole gamut of experience and emotion. And Jesus himself didn't take a sabbatical to edit the Psalter. He prayed them as they were. He received them as they were, and he didn't stop them being passed on as they are. Indeed, he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law, the Torah. um, And it seems that he might have had the same take on the whole of scripture. These are scriptures which shape a community identity. However, unpalatable, they may, may seem, and they remind us, even those most gory and unpleasant of verses, that in fact God invites us to give everything to him. Our moments of anxiety and profound sadness, our moments of the most vicious anger, as well as our moments of sweetness and light. And their psalms of wisdom. Some psalms, like 119, um, are indeed designed, it would seem, as wisdom psalms. They, they are uh, they're like an ABC. Uh, they are written, each verse, starting with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You don't always get that in the BCP, in, in uh, other translations. You don't always have that brought out because that would be quite difficult to do um, in a different language. But if we know that that's how they're written, that tells us something about some psalms that might seem to have been put together as kind of textbook psalms. Psalms that are deeply about the law or about wisdom. Psalms that want people to learn as well as to be able to pray. And learning and prayer, of course, as we've thought about, go rather closely together in the world of psalms learning and humility were part of my overture as it were to uh, the first week of Lent. We don't uh, necessarily always remember every sermon we've heard um, but one sermon I do once remember uh, in my first college chapel uh, was that to learn requires humility and to teach requires patience. That learning requires humility is, um, is deep, and it helps us to realise that we've still got stuff to learn. Helps us to be open to what we might learn from others, or from texts, or from experiences. You've heard me say that this is a learning process uh, for me as it is for you, and therefore I'm <coughs> hoping that I might too learn um, from some of your questions and feedback. Um, and engaging with me about uh, the wonderful texts of the Psalms and the way in which um, I have sought to draw them together for devotional Lent reading. And just to end uh, with a little finale, if you haven't begun yet, it's not too late. (laughs) Thank you very much.